Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 60 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I am pleased to welcome Brett Stetka, a non-practicing physician who graduated from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in 2005, an editorial director at Medscape.com, the professional division of WebMD.com. Stetka is also a regular contributor to NPR. But today, we'll primarily be discussing a history of the human brain, from the sea sponge to CRISPR, How Our Brain Evolved, his new book from Workman Publishing. We'll cover how and why intelligence evolved on our own Earth and how we can better quantify under what conditions and in what forms it might evolve on habitable planets throughout the cosmos. Stetka joins us from the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York. Brett, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Bruce, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very excited to talk about, uh, you know, all things brain and space and astronomy and, you know, wherever we go. First off, how would you define intelligence? That's, a, that's definitely a tough one that is, is highly debated. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's certainly not the result of a, an IQ test or something that, uh, you know, simplistic or, or reductionist. I think, you know, from the biological sense, intelligence could be described as just successfully navigating your environment, you know, solving your problems in order to survive, to reproduce the classic sort of Darwinian, you know, goals, if you will. I I really think that, you know, we define it based on like, can you do this math equation or can you write this essay? And I I don't think that that is at all, um, you you know, corollary to what it means to be intelligent. I think I, I really do think it just means can you can you thrive in your environment and survive? Can you maintain a social group? You know, do you find a mate and reproduce all the biological tropes? So yeah, I, I think it's a, a sort of a it's, it's a fluid definition. So yeah, I, I really just think it's existing successfully and surviving and and solving problems, the day to day problem. And it's messy and it's a very broad definition in my mind. Well, how uh, does a human brain differ from all the others on Earth? Well, phys- I mean, physically it differs in that it has uh, a big cortex, which is the, you know, the outer layer of our brain, the cerebral cortex we often hear about, especially the frontal lobe or the prefrontal cortex is the big kind of you know, layer of brain on, in our foreheads, right beneath our foreheads. As, as you move up in what we call, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll revert back to just calling intelligence, being able to solve problems again, gorillas and um, the intelligent mammals such as, um, you know, cetaceans, like whales, dolphins, and even some birds, uh, corvids, which are crows, magpies, ravens. They have a much bigger cortex proportionally to their body and to the rest of their brain. And so that's you know, it's 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 very important. It feels kind of again reductionist to say it's oh, it's just this layer of neuronal cells, this layer of cells that is doing this, but it it kind of is um, that influential. Once we get this interconnected cortical layer of brain, 
you know, our, our heads get bigger, our skulls get bigger. We're born earlier to accommodate that skull coming, you know, being able to be birthed for one thing. I think that is what separates us. And like, it, it's not an all or nothing thing. If you, if you look at our closest cousins, chimpanzees and the bonobos, they have an incredibly large cortex too. It's smaller than ours proportionally. You look at a gorilla or a uh, chimpanzee, smaller again, but all of the ape and then even some of you know, the primates, mon- uh, monkeys, simians, they also have a proportionally much larger cortex. So I think our brain in our ape lineage our, you know, was really, it, it, it favored us to be intelligent and savvy. Like we, we weren't the strongest on the African planet where we evolved. We weren't the fastest, you know, we had, you know, lions and cheetahs, and, you know, they were much faster, much stronger than us. So selection, natural selection was favoring craftiness and being intelligent. And uh, that just led to a bigger and bigger brain. And we have the, you know, one of the proportionally one of the biggest and the most uh, versatile. Then I was just thinking, you mentioned the African plateau, which we, which we think that humans first of all in East Africa. So do you, Look at the pachyderms, the, the elephants, who have what looks like a pretty large brain, a cortex, as you would call it. Proportionally, is it that large when you consider the size of their bodies? Elephants are incredibly intelligent. And yeah, gr- uh, in terms of gross um, size or weight, of course, they just have a huge brain. Big, you know, blue whales, elephants, the, the, the mammoth animals, pardon the pun, because mammoths had a big brain too, they, they are bigger proportionally than you would expect for a mammal of that size. So they they are very intelligent, um, but they're not as big as our brain proportionally. So they're incredibly smart, but you know, gross size became kind of irrelevant uh, it, through evolution, through the evolution of the brain once the connectivity of the brain became more important. How neurons connect how the brain is structured, how the architecture connects. For millions of years of evolution, having a bigger brain proportionate to your body was was very important. But then the molecular, the cellular architecture of the brain became more important. How do these neurons connect? So you don't necessarily need more of them. You need them connected in the right way. And you need more synapses and more neuronal connections versus just a bigger and bigger brain. So the cerebral cortex is composed of columns of neurons, so nerve cells. And, you know, as we evolved in an increasingly intelligent species, they, they actually get further apart. They're more separated. So there's more space in our cerebral cortex than there is in a chimp and then a whale and, and certainly more than, you know, a monkey or a cat or a dog. And, but there are more connections. So there's more space between these columns of cells, but they can send out these branches called axons and dendrites that can connect. And those are really what is doing, doing the job in terms of uh, everything, thinking, movement, uh, sensing. And so the more connections you have and the more space you have to make those connections, the better. It's the same size brain. Our brains have actually shrunk for the last 30,000 years by 10%. But the connections are much more advanced, much more sophisticated, complex. And that's, uh, that's where we get the higher, you know, quote-unquote, intelligence. So in a 2019 paper you, you mentioned in your book, uh, German biologist Detlev Arendt wrote, quote, yep. The evolution of neurons in the nervous system is one of the remaining great mysteries of animal evolution. 
the idea of the neuron, which is just you know the, the cells that run our brain and run our nervous system. This is how we feel any sensation, pain, how we enjoy anything. You know, I mean, just every pleasure you can imagine or every pain you can imagine is is caused by neurons, is a uh, facilitated by neurons. You know, they are very different in many of the earliest species on Earth, the earliest animals on Earth, not species, but the earliest animals on Earth, because only animals have neurons. So if you look at some of the first animals, so sea sponges, um, jellyfish, comb jellies, uh, anemones, they have primordial neurons. I mean, jellyfish have real actual neurons. And so these are just cells that communicate with with each other in a much more complicated way than, say, our skin cells do. Um, They use electricity, electrical current to do that. And if you look at a lot of these early animals, their neuron structure, the anatomy of the cells, look a lot different. So Detlef believes that you know, they, it could have been a case of convergent evolution, which is, um, you know, loosely defined as some uh, some trait is so beneficial to survival for a species that it, it evolves in multiple different species. So it's not a clean family tree of uh, one species evolved, you know, neurons, and then everything branches out from there. It's more that, like, we all, you know, these early animals all had cells that communicated with each other through chemical messengers and neurotransmitters. And then it was so beneficial that in multiple lineages of animal, it was beneficial to have a look that looked like a neuron that communicate with each other and, uh, and led to a higher form of, com- you know, complex life that could react to the environment and go after food in a more efficient manner. And, so you said, in other that. words, you think that, uh, that our neurons in our brains today are the beneficiaries of this ancient evolution in jellyfish, the, the neurons in jellyfish, for instance. Uh, there's a direct link between the evolution of these early neurons in jellyfish and our own brain? Yeah, in a way. I think that there's a shared, there's probably a, some kind of a shared ancestor to the neuron, and I write about it. You know, see, uh, I, I quote a sea sponge in my book, it's in the subtitle, uh-huh. as probably probably the first evidence of cells communicating in a complex way. So even though they didn't have a neuron, like a brain cell, um, they had cells that talked to each other through chemicals, which are just neurotransmitters, and they use about three of the same neurotransmitters that our brains use today, like GABA and norepinephrine. And So I think that, yes, like if, if you look at the earliest animals you're talking about sea sponges, jellyfish, like their descendants are still around. They're incredibly successful. Um, before they've lived for 700 million years, probably the most successful organisms on earth, except for bacteria. The cells communicated in a, in a way that evolved into our neurons and so they, in other words, know, enabled our brain. So in other words, this shift you write, uh, you mentioned in your book began some 600 to 700 million years ago, the shift of this more efficient way of, of connecting in a, on a cellular way, communicating on a cell-to-cell basis. You know, we had a lot. We've had a lot of extinction events over the eons. Sure. And so, how did let's say that the sea sponges? I mean, did the are the sea sponges that we're talking about? I assume that this. You know, we can find sea sponges today. Uh, were the did these sea sponges survive these great extinction events like the Ordovician event 
and the other event events or were some form of sea sponge or anemone developing you know if one was wiped out by an extinction event did another somehow evolve to do kind of the same thing with the near with their own version of a neuron yeah that's a great question uh, yeah i mean we we can literally buy sea sponges you know over at target or walmart i mean they uh the, uh, the sea sponges we we still use as sponges <laughs> okay. are. Uh, I didn't realize you could. I didn't, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot you could buy a sea sponge at Target. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's 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 the sponge. It's it's one of the most successful you know creatures of all time. I mean so so they have. I mean of course they were probably different because they've been evolving for seven hundred million years as have jellyfish and uh, but they are you know they are the same lineage of creature and there were probably around the Ediacaran Cambrian time so that's uh, you know roughly 700 to 500 million years ago you know there were probably a ton of creatures like a sea sponge there's a there's a, a group of, of species called placozoans that were like a, a little pancake double layered pancake kind of thing there were all these like primordial creatures that were you know, everyone debates who, what's the first animal, what, was it a plant, was it an animal, and, and, you know, it was all kind of murky, because, you know, when, when do you define an animal versus a plant, does it start metabolizing energy from organic compounds, but, yeah, it's, uh, there were probably a lot of stalk-like creatures that were, you know, sessile, they, they had a little foot that stuck them in the bottom of the ocean, and kind of waved, and sea sponges were are a big candidate for the first official animal because it filtered water and brought in nutrients that way and metabolized organic compounds. And um, it was a, a very pleasant period of of animals and or plants that kind of stuck to the ocean floor and waved and and, and took in nutrients like organic molecules from uh, single cell creatures mostly. And um, it was it was nice. But yeah, the sponge. The sponge was very interesting because the cells in a sponge collect together and take on different roles. So it was one of the first examples of a multicellular creature like like us. We have liver cells, kidney cells, or brain cells that all do different things. The sponge is really the first example of that, or at least one of the first. What about oxygen? Because oxygen we know uh, we need for energy uh, for our not only our brains but our heart and you know it's essential sure. to our function and up until the great oxidation event at 2.4 billion, billion years yeah. in, into our history into earth's history you know basically there wasn't that much oxygen and it's kind of still a mystery as to what caused this oxidation event so how did the rise of oxygen affect the rise of intelligence? Yeah, so in, in general, you know, the, the Earth was mostly anaerobic, no oxygen. You know, once life probably arose in the form of bacteria and archaea and these single-celled organisms 3.5 billion years ago or so. Then you get these cyanobacteria, which are bacteria that photosynthesize in the same way that plants do. You know, they're, they're taking in the carbon dioxide from the environment and they're putting out oxygen and with that and you know we we do see around 2 billion to 2.5 billion years ago the oxygen level and this is based on geological samples and um i know we both read andrew Knoll's book uh brief history of earth which 
gets into this really nicely. Um, yeah, all he, of a sudden, he, the, he was the previous guest. You know, once the Earth has, you know, for for a billion, um, millions of years, it was maybe one percent of the oxygen level that the Earth is today. But that was enough to support bacteria that metabolize oxygen and then, you know, respirated essentially. So you get these cyanobacteria that are the first photosynthesizing, you know, creatures on Earth, really. They're single cells and they photosynthesize just like a plant and they kick out oxygen. So gradually you have, you know, an increasing amount of oxygen in the environment. Um, and then eukaryotes evolve, which are, you know, cells with a nucleus. So everything we know, you know, most big plants, animals, us, are eukaryotes. Our cells all have a nucleus, which houses our DNA. And they have, what are, you know, in animals we have mitochondria, which create our energy through oxygen. And in plants there are chloroplasts, which create their energy. And all that can only work with oxygen. So once there's enough, you know, photosynthesis happening, you get uh, an oxygen-rich planet, really, and that's what sends us down this path of eukaryotes that have this protected DNA. They have these organelles, these little mini organs in our cells that create energy through oxygen. And uh, yeah, and all of a sudden you get, you know, our trajectory. You get sea creatures you get worms you get fish you get reptiles amphibians and eventually mammals so it's it really oxygen really changed the course of uh you know the planet and and life fish qualify as a bilaterian can you can you explain what a bilaterian is sure so early in life you know as we talked about the first animals looked like sea sponges they looked like fronds they were a simple sort of stock and then you get jellyfish comb jellies you get a sort of three-dimensional uh, circle of a creature that that you know really moves and feeds in three dimensions. Like a jellyfish can go up, down, left, right. It's a sort you know it's it's really like a, an orb. But then in our lineage, there were advantages to being like literally a worm type shape. So you have uh, cephalization, as they call it, which is the you know, the concentration of sensory organs at one end of your body. So a, a head, basically. And and you get, you literally get a worm that has, you know, the ability to, to sense light, to taste at one end of the body. And, and with that body setup, you can't really flit around the sea like you would a jellyfish. So you're, you're on the sea floor, you're crawling, you're in a two-dimensional world, not a three-dimensional world. And with that setup, all of a sudden you're symmetrical in a bilateral way. So, you know, a jellyfish is symmetrical all the way around, but a worm and, you know, pretty much most animals and certainly mammals and us are bilateral. You know, we're each side, we have two sides that look the same. They mirror each other. And so that's a, a general term for once our worm-like ancestors came around. Bilateria, just meaning bilateral. This bilateralization enabled the development of a nervous system in, in which you had a frontal cortex where the nerve centers were concentrated at the front of the creature's body. That's completely right. So yeah, imagine you're, uh, you know, a jellyfish is doing just fine. They're still around, but <laughs> if <laughs> they're uh, they're not at the top of the food chain, if if, if you're um, if you know all of a sudden you have a genetic mutation or some selection on 
you know, literally an individual cell on one side of your body that is better at detecting light. You're going to move toward that side of your body. And that's, I imagine many generations later, that becomes an eye. And you do the same thing with, oh, like, you know, another couple of cells can detect chemicals in the sea. That becomes taste or smell. And it just makes more sense uh, in terms of, you know, just advantageous uh, evolution to have all of those senses concentrated on one one end of your body. And also to, over time, these senses evolve to be ever and ever more perceptive and sensitive and acute. Yeah, you, you start with one cell that maybe is more sensitive to light, so you can now see where your food source is a little bit better. But yeah, over the next hundred generations, you know, whoever has another mutation that causes a couple more cells to, uh, you know, divide and, and now you're even more perceptive to light. So it's a long, slow process over millions of years, but, you know, that's what happens. And then all of a sudden, all of your senses are at one end and you can control your body and your environment better than a jellyfish or better than a comb jelly. You're much more nimble. You know, you can find your food easier. You can get away from from predators and you know it, it kind of it makes uh, a lot of evolutionary sense and you also uh, write interestingly in, enough that one reason there was a move to land was because the seas were becoming so crowded as they became more and more crowded the existing species in our oceans became more and more subject to predation and on land there was basically <laughs> there. There was nothing on land. There was there were no predators on land. So there there was one advantage for moving to land. There wasn't much living on the earth, you know on the on the terra at that point besides probably microorganisms like bacteria and archaea and probably insects from the arthropods another lineage of animal from the crabs and the lobsters you know their descendants also led to insects who were on land already but um yeah it was it was a safe space to just leave you know lay your eggs and leave them and that led to our entire lineage of of reptile mammal human all of it but interestingly enough uh you know sharks are obviously fish but uh you know whales and the cetaceans the dolphins the porpoises and the and the and the whales are mammals if mammals didn't become encephalized until, you know, after basically they took over the earth after the impactor that killed the dinosaurs, is that when the mammals, the, the orcas and the, and the dolphins all went to sea, so to speak? The whales, dolphins, porpoises, they're all related to the hippo. So, yeah, so mammals evolved on land, you know, and you can kind of see it. If you look at a manatee or, a, you know, your your average whale, you can kind of tell they were hippo-like ung, uh, ungulates, you know, uh, hoofed creatures on Earth, terrestrial creatures, that then started spending more time, more and more time in this in the seas and the water, and went back. So you know, you whales, uh, porpoises, and orcas, which are sort of you know a, a part of Delphinidae, the dolphin family. I mean, most most of what we call whales are actually dolphins and. They all, um, yeah, they all, uh, they all are very much related to the hippo, the hippopotamus, uh-huh. and went and went back into the sea. And you know, they're not the alpha predator that a great white is, unless they're big enough. But yeah, they're they're durable. They're they're doing fine. But yeah, they're they're kind of a strange lot because they were 
mammals that evolved on land and then went back to the ocean versus sharks who are fish. They're, they're just fish. So let's jump back. Uh, we didn't really cover this. Let's go back to how the brain cells function in the firing. We always hear this expression, well, your synapses aren't firing too well today. Or yada, yada, <laughs> yada. Uh, can you explain how this actually works? It's all electricity. It's all an electrical current. So um, when people say your brain cells are firing, it's um, what's happening is your, your, your brain cells have a, a electrical gradient through osmosis and just through our chemistry. If, if our brain is not firing, you have a lot of sodium, as in like, you know, salt, sodium chloride you have a lot of sodium outside of your cell cellular membrane um, and that's positively charged and then inside your inside your cells your brain cells you have a lot of potassium another essential nutrient so this is why this is why we need to eat salt and why we need to eat potassium in part because it runs our brain but there's more charged sodiums outside of your brain cell than there are charged potassiums inside so when the brain, you know, a single cell gets a, a stimulus, whether it's a neurotransmitter or whether it's, you know, in a, in a distal, in a neuron in your arm, whether someone touches you or you feel something, that, that opens up a channel in your cell. All those, those sodiums rush in and the potassiums rush out to balance the charge. It's a pure chemical, you know, reaction, just trying to balance the charge, it, make it equilibrium. And that sends that charge all the way down the neuron, uh, an, an extension called the axon, which is a long sort of uh, arm of every brain cell we have. Um, so that charge continues down the axon, and because at the end of the axon you have these little vesicles, these little sacs of neurotransmitters, all the, all the ones we hear about like uh, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, GABA, and once that charge hits, those vesicles open just purely due to the chemical and physical properties of the, of the vesicle, and it releases that dopamine, and that now stimulates the next cell. So, you know, when we talk about, like, the reward center and how you feel pleasure during, you know, whatever it is, you know, drinking or gambling or food, whatever, it's, a, it's this dopamine being released to different centers of your brain that cause pleasure. But it's really all just electrical current causing the release of chemicals. And where that exchange takes place is called a synapse, where two neurons meet. Explain the difference between the term hominid and hominin. We hear these bandied about, and people probably don't know the difference. It's, it's honestly a, a, you know, not a controversial term, but an unagreed-upon term. In general, hominid includes all the great apes, so the great apes really are after our lineage branched from, you know, what we would call monkeys. You get a few other lesser apes, they call them, which I feel like is disrespectful. So that's the gibbons and the Siamings. <laughs> okay. But, but the, we call ourselves the great apes if you are a human, a chimp, a bonobo, a gorilla, or an orangutan. And so those are all of those great apes are called hominids with a D, and then hominins is generally our human lineage, like post our split with chimpanzees seven million years ago. So, you know, there's a ton of humans have been around for seven million years. Uh, Neanderthals, Denisovans, Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalensis. There's you know there's probably been twenty documented human species. And those are hominins, so anything human-like post our split with chimps. But our Homo sapiens, this is what people probably don't appreciate, is that 
that our species Homo sapiens, which means wise man, the the uh, Swedish uh, naturalist whose name escapes uh, me, Carl Linnaeus, yeah, I believe. right, yep. right, actually came up with that term, and uh, Homo sapiens has only only been around for what two hundred thousand years. Yeah, about 200. I mean, some people some people say 300 and like all of evolution, it's 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 arbitrary where you you draw the line. 300,000 years ago, I'm sure there were Homo sapien like, you know, great apes around and you know, every, there's branching, there's many different species, but in general, yes, 200 to 250, I would say, we can define Homo sapiens. The evolution of the great apes was driven by climate change. You wrote in your book that in Scientific American, Columbia University paleoclimatologist Peter B. Domenicall wrote, quote, The creatures that adapted to these shifts, those that showed flexibility in what they ate and where they lived, appear to be the ones that prospered. Yeah, I think that was a huge part of our, um, you know, our success, if you want to if you want to call it that. Uh, we've taken over the planet. Um, for better or for worse, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know we might be running it into the ground, but uh, at least at least Jeff Bezos is going to space. Um, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, no, I think um, that the uh, geological evidence and anthropological evidence shows that we had there were many many you know climate shifts over the last couple million years since Homo erectus evolved around two million years ago who are, you know, are are sort of famously one of our first close cousins. And, yeah, the, uh, you know, we all evolved in Africa, and the African climate dried out. There were periods of glaciation prior to that where the earth got cold, and there were periods where everything warmed. And things got warm about two million years ago, and again, another million years ago. I think what really helped us was that we were omnivorous. We could adapt to changing climates. And really, that means adapt to changing food sources. Um, so, whereas many of you know our cousins, uh, Paranthropus, which is an Australopithecine, um, you know they they mostly subsisted on grasses, and even chimps today, you know they mostly eat fruit and a little bit of meat. But humans were able to uh, really thrive on anything. So they could eat the fruit, they could eat the leaves that were in the forest. If the climate dried out which it did on multiple occasions they could you know we could dig up roots we could eat uh corms and tubers and sweet potatoes which were all over africa like the sweet potato ancestor at least so yeah we we just could adapt and then eventually we started eating seafood from the shores of africa and from lakes and so yeah so I think we endured in part because we were so omnivorous. We could just eat anything, and we still do. I mean, most species don't eat, eat you know, nearly the breadth of food that we do. We, we eat everything. You know, we're eating oysters and hamburgers and grains and leaves, and most species don't do that. They have a much more narrow diet. You write that preserved ash from Wanderwerk Cave in South Africa has humans cooking food at least a million years ago. And so this is not Homo sapiens, but this is... Uh, uh, I guess some of our predecessors. You write that cooked food is not only easier to chew, it's also easier to digest, saving its energy. This sounds crazy, but cooking food allowed our mouths and our dental structure to change over time so that we could evolve into being able to better communicate via sounds, via language, via singing, as opposed to having to use our dental structure to 
actually chop food. Cooking, I think, was a big part of our religion too. And you know, none of the none of these single factors are are you know one and all of how we got here. These are you know, as I hope I portray in my book, it's all the the confluence of them. And and cooking was a big one. So we were you know we didn't really eat meat until about two million years ago. Um, we ate meat the way that chimpanzees and bonobos eat meat, which is about three percent of their diet. You know, once we started, we started scavenging meat about two million years ago, probably around the time of Homo erectus, uh, you know, whatever the lions left behind. You know, we, we weren't at the top of the food chain again, and we certainly couldn't outcompete a lion. And so they would eat, and then we would get the spoils of whatever they didn't want to eat. They mostly ate the organ meat, which is the most nutritive meat of all. Still, it still is, and, you know, you find it on nice fancy restaurant menus, but... You know, for the most part, most of us don't eat liver and gallbladder and pancreas every day. And the li- the lions do. And then we would get the muscle, which, you know, is, you know, our steaks, basically. And, um, and that really allowed our brains to expand much more than um, they had just because it was a reliable source of calories. You didn't have to forage all day for, you know, roots and tubers and fruits you had one kill or, you know, a stolen kill from a lion and you had, you know, tens of thousands of calories all day long and you could focus on other, other things. And you also write in your book, as what I was mentioning earlier, is that because you didn't have to expend so much energy in uh, chewing, chewing, sapiens evolved to have very small teeth and a reduced jaw. And you write that it's thought that this change occurred in part to accommodate for language. With a smaller instrument yeah. being better able to, better capable of controlling sound, the language. I mean, uh, and we hear this so much in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Will, sure, if yeah. there are aliens out there and there are alien technologies, will they even care to communicate? You know, will they communicate? Socialization, one thing that gave us a leg up. We were highly socialized creatures. We, we, you know, we had to cooperate. So we had. We had been pretty social, as primate. All primates are pretty social, and that's it's very effective. Like chimpanzees can maintain really in-depth social communities of about 50, 50 members. But once you can speak in a more nuanced way, you can have about one hundred and fifty close friends or acquaintances versus fifty in chimpanzees, and that's a, a, a generalization. But in general, like if you have the ability to speak with symbolic, meaningful sounds. Yeah, you can you can really expand your social circle, which is only going to help you survive and reproduce. You're going to meet more people. You're going to be protected. Socializing mixed with symbolic language was huge in our uh, evolution. You write that the uh, anthropologist Augustin Fuentes argues that creativity is at the very root of how we evolved and why we are the way we are. Quote, it's our ability to move back and forth between the realms of what is and what could be that has enabled us to reach beyond being a successful species to becoming an exceptional one. I think that gets back to one of your early questions about what differentiates the human brain from uh, other brains, other species brains. And I think that, yeah, creativity really came to define us much, you know, and, that, and this is all tied in with, you know, harnessing fire and hunting. All of that takes a creative mind. Once you have a brain that can solve problems in such a complex way where you can, 
you know, figure out that, oh, this, this, this piece of stone in the future could be a, a, an axe or a tool if I just work it the right way, which, you know, even chimpanzees, they can kind of do that, but not in the way we can. I think that really defines, you know, an intelligent brain as we would define it. Like, you know, it involves planning, executive function. It's, it's, um, it's a level of sophistication that other species don't seem to have. And certainly Neanderthals did and many other human species did. But for now, I think we're the only one that has uh, that ability to be creative, which, you know, loosely could be defined as just generating an an entirely new idea on, you know, on earth or in the universe, something that, you know, you're not taught, you might use prior knowledge to develop, but it's a, it's a, just a new idea. That's creativity. So there were three aspects of homo sapiens success. Number one was a very high level of socialization. Number two, an ability to communicate. And number three, uh, creativity in the manner in which we were we communicated our creativity you know in a vacuum maybe might have just died out but once you have a community that can witness it and copy it or mimic it um and as psychologists say ratchet it which means take it and improve upon it it's uh you know it gets passed down from generation to generation and we're one of the only species that do that aside from chimpanzees and and some of the you know, cetaceans or the dolphins, um, passing along knowledge, uh, you know, in addition to the knowledge itself, that was just as important. So knowing what you know, because you spent a lot of time researching, you know, the development of the human brain, know what you know about the development of the human brain, what would you expect of a so-called intelligent civilization elsewhere in terms of physiological structure, the evolution of their brains, it's a, uh, the civilization's ability to ponder the meaning of the universe, the meaning of life, the meaning of lifespans. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's a, one of the big questions. I think that it's, it's certainly possible that there's life elsewhere in the universe. I, I, I personally think there probably is, even if it's just uh, microorganisms or bacteria. Intelligent life. I mean, my question is intelligent. <laughs> my, my question oh, yeah. is a $64,000 question there. Come on. I do think that the way that life formed on Earth, presumably, it makes sense chemically. There are a certain set of chemicals that come together and form the biological molecules that we know construct ourselves and all life on Earth. And probably, if there is life in the universe, you know, it, it's going to come together in somewhat similar manner, unless there's something that we just can't even detect, which is possible. But, uh, so, do, but do but you I, think that our brain, our own brain, is a fluke? I mean, this is a, this is the deal. I mean, are I mean, we it, a fluke? It's a fluke. It's a fluke. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, as far as we know, it's a fluke. But it could be that yes, another somewhere way out there, this happened again. I don't know if it would look like us. I don't know if it'd be shaped like us. Uh, but I do think it would involve this, many of the same chemicals and molecules, just because we know what the composition of the universe is. And that's basically all we know. So I feel like that's well, we know. We, well, we know that water is a solvent of life. You know, you can't. Yeah, people yeah. go on and on forever today about silicon-based life. You know, I'm not going to say it could never happen, but it's not likely. Okay, uh, it, it's likely that there are three elements from from my 
what I know about astrobiology, there are three elements that we that's gonna gonna be required of any life: water, carbon, and oxygen. Okay, because you need the oxygen for the energy, and and to get the highly socialized, highly encephalized sort of life that we're talking about, you're probably gonna ha- you're probably talking about an oxygen oxygenated world that has liquid water and is, has carbon-based uh, molecules of some complexity. So, given all that, and let's say it's not a water, let's say it's not uh, like Enceladus or Europa and has an ocean underneath a frozen layer, okay? Uh, let's say it has a, a normal sort of ocean and then a, a dichotomy between continents and, and oceans, and the same sort of astrophysical processes are, are out there. Yeah. It, it seems that the bilaterian paradigm would apply. It doesn't seem to me that you would necessarily have intelligent jellyfish like running a planet. Do you? I mean, I I definitely tend to agree. I mean, there's a there's it's conceivable that complex life could arise in an anoxic environment. Um, I do not know if you know the probability of that. I tend to agree with you though that it would probably follow a similar path. You know, I, I the cognition thing and like, are, are we conscious? Like, what what species is conscious? I I really just don't know. Maybe it's an outlier. Maybe we are the one. I tend to not think so. And there's probably something out there because we're just one. So do you galaxy. think? So do you think that that one element of intelligence is consciousness? I mean, in other words, do you think that a spacefaring civilization is going to have to be going to have even if they're intelligent, are they going to have to have consciousness? And there's evidence, though, that the cetaceans have some level of consciousness, right? Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, uh, if you you listen to uh, Christoph Koch, I mean, a lot of philosophers, neuroscientists, I, th- I think consciousness is a continuum. Uh, you know, I think that your cat, your dog, has some degree of consciousness that's controversial with some people. But I think any, any subjective... Uh, appreciation of the world any subjective experience that no one else is experiencing can be defined as consciousness and you know people take it to the extreme or like a, a bacteria or a roach has consciousness or even a chair and that might be too far but i think that yeah i think that if you're experiencing something wholly unique that no one else experiences that's consciousness and probably somewhere in the universe there's a being that experiences that but who knows what that would look like in terms of the $64,000 question and, and in terms of intelligent aliens, so you do yeah. think they would most, most likely be, you know, symmetrical, bipedal maybe. You don't see them as a hive intelligence necessarily. You don't see them as a sponge-like intelligence. You see them probably along the lines of what E.O. Wilson has written. And he, in one of his books, even postulated that intelligent life elsewhere would probably be bipedal i wouldn't have thought so to be honest i would have thought it you know we are bipedal and that serves us well in our terrain on our planet and the geography that we have in which we evolved i mean certainly it's a it's a very efficient form of locomotion but you know for the most of life on earth for 95 percent of it we no one was bipedal that's uh that's literally within the last 7 million years, roughly, and we've been around for 4 billion years. I don't know. I, I, I would disagree with that. And I hate to disagree with E.O. Wilson that 
you know, on the spot, I'm going to say, I just don't think anyone can really predict what the organism would look like. I really, I really just don't. So what puzzles you most then about human intelligence and or the human brain? I think what puzzles me most is how we have conjured up uh, consciousness. Like what, what is it? How do we, I know I, I, I just defined it earlier, so I'm kind of figuring myself, but how do we create this reality with our brains? And that's what's fascinating. I mean, that's what's beautiful about consciousness and the brain and humanity. I mean, it, it, it all is what we perceive. And, you know, everyone perceives it differently. So everyone's consciousness is different. So it's, I think that's the ultimate mystery. And, and perhaps that will never be solved. And maybe that's a beautiful thing to, to never solve that spirituality comes in and and all that but uh yeah just the fact that we're here uh, period is fascinating and what puzzles you most when thinking about the possibility of intelligence beyond our solar system honestly that doesn't puzzle me as much as the idea that we just exist because i do think that there's got to be some other there has to be something else beyond our solar system which would make sense because we arose somehow but the fact that we anything arose is what puzzles me. I hope there is life beyond our solar system. We discover it. Everything's peaceful. Um, but yeah, well, so I'll still be enamored and in awe of the fact that anything exists at all. So, Brett, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or to learn more? Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at it's all uh, Brett Stetka, B-R-E-T-S-T-E-T-K-A, or just Google A History of the Human Brain. That's my book, and that should bring you to uh, all my, you know, all the various Amazons and Facebooks and all the sites. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Brett Stetka, thanks for giving us a better understanding of how we evolved intelligence. Bruce, thank you so much for having me. This was incredibly fun, and I love talking about all this, the brain, evolution, space. Thank you again. Thank you for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.